everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. First, a quote from this week's speaker, Lisa Ferens. Trauma survivors are a unique population of clients that represent nearly 80% of clients at mental health clinics and require specialized knowledge on behalf of their therapists. But the key to understanding traumatic events is that it refers to extreme stress that overwhelms a person's ability to cope. Different experts in the field define psychological trauma in different ways. What is essential to emphasize is that it is an individual's subjective experience that determines whether an event is or is not traumatic. Basically, psychological trauma is defined as the unique individual experience of an event or enduring conditions in which the individual's ability to integrate his or her emotional experience is overwhelmed or the individual experiences a threat to life, bodily integrity, or sanity. Thus, a traumatic event or situation creates psychological trauma when it overwhelms the individual's ability to cope and leaves that person fearing death, annihilation, mutilation, or psychosis. The individual may feel emotionally, cognitively, and physically overwhelmed. The circumstances of the event commonly include abuse of power, betrayal of trust, entrapment, helplessness, pain, confusion, and or loss. Essentially, their worlds fall apart. This definition of trauma is fairly broad. It includes responses to powerful one-time incidents like accidents, natural disasters, crimes, surgeries, deaths, and other violent events. It also includes responses to chronic or repetitive experiences such as child abuse, neglect, combat, urban violence, concentration camps, battering relationships, and enduring deprivation. This definition intentionally does not allow us to determine whether a particular event is traumatic. That is up to each survivor. Rather, this definition provides a guideline for our understanding of a survivor's experience of the events and conditions of his or her life. Now, post-traumatic growth refers to positive psychological change experienced as a result of adversity and other challenges in order to rise to a higher level of functioning. These sets of circumstances represent significant challenges to the adaptive resources of the individual and pose significant challenges to individuals' ways of understanding the world and their place in it. Post-traumatic growth is not about returning to the same life as it was previously experienced before a period of traumatic suffering, but rather it is about undergoing significant life-changing psychological shifts in thinking and relating to the world that contribute to a personal process of change that is deeply meaningful. 
It is often characterized by decreased reactivity and faster recovery in response to similar stressors in the future. This occurs as a result of exposure to the event and subsequent learning. It is associated with the positive psychology movement. Here to discuss how she works with trauma survivors to embrace change, take healthy risks, and increase self-compassion is Lisa Ferentz, a recognized expert in the strengths-based, depathologized treatment of trauma. Ms. Ferens is the author of Treating Self-Destructive Behaviors in Traumatized Clients, a Clinician's Guide, now in its second edition, Letting Go of Self-Destructive Behaviors, a Workbook of Hope and Healing, and her newest book, Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. Now to our interview. We want to talk to you, Ms. Ferens, today about your work in understanding and helping patients transcend trauma. That was just right. the name of the article that was re- you wrote in uh, Psychotherapy Networker and is a big part of your new book called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. And how did you come to the awareness about what's now called post-traumatic growth? You know, I think, Barbara, I I got to that place because I've had uh, the great privilege of being in the field a very long time and being able to work with a large number of clients over a long period of time. So I've really been able to witness kind of their trajectory of healing. And I started to notice a few years ago, particularly with the clients I had, you know, had been working with me for a long time, that there was this very a palpable and even dramatic shift in the way they talked about their trauma, in the meaning that they attached to their trauma, in the changes that they were starting to make in their personal lives. I noticed that they were much more socially connected and less isolated. Interestingly enough, I noticed a large number of clients beginning to reconnect with a sense of spirituality. You know, it's not unusual when somebody has been traumatized that not only do they feel betrayed by their caretakers, but they can also feel betrayed by God. And so trauma can really mess with one's either religious observance or spiritual, you know, sense of the world. So people began to reconnect spiritually and socially. And the other really wonderful thing that started to happen was that more and more of my clients would come into session, and what they were really grappling with was not the trauma anymore, was not whether or not they wanted to confront their perpetrators or get forgiveness uh, or, you know, get forgiveness or forgive, but rather how could they begin to pay it forward in their own lives. And I think for me that's one of the real, the hallmark features of post-traumatic growth is this desire to really transcend what's happened and to recognize that you can then become a source of inspiration and motivation for people who may not be as far along as you. And so this idea of wanting to pay it forward and to inspire other people and to let people know not to give up, you know, that healing is possible and that you don't have to spend the rest of your life having your identity revolve around what was done to you. So I started to see all those things, you know, in in session, um, in the later stages of treatment. What I became curious about, Barbara, was were there ways that I could begin to plant the seeds for post-traumatic growth earlier in the therapeutic process? 
you know, rather than waiting for people to have done 10 years of psychotherapy. And so that's really what kind of inspired me to write the book, Finding Your Ruby Slippers. The whole premise of the book is really helping people to connect with the idea that they have this extraordinary inner wisdom and that they don't have to wait until something externally changes in their life or somebody um, in, within a relationship says or does something differently in order for them to move forward in their healing and to recognize the, the inner resiliency and strength and, and creativity that they possess. So my mission now is to help people kind of get there sooner in the process, or at least to plant the seed. When when you that say that something started to happen, what do you think you did to help them start this? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, you know it's such a lovely question, but I have to say, um, I think in the beginning of all this, it really wasn't so much about me. All, you know. Certainly, I play a role in the process, but I think so much of this is a willingness on the part of the client to allow for an opening so that new meaning and new interpretation about their trauma can begin to be uncovered. I think it requires a willingness on the part of the client to accept my overtures towards um, modeling compassion so that they can begin to internalize self-compassion. So, yeah, there are definitely things that I do and have done, and I'm happy to, you know, spell them out for you. Um, but I think what's really critical, you know, to to articulate is that at the end of the day, it's really up to the client to decide, you know, if they're willing to allow for that opening and that space in their therapy and in their lives and the way they think about what happened to them. So that's their courage and their bravery first. I think that has to be in place. Or do they have to at least be curious about when you first start seeing somebody, and obviously they're going to be terribly upset as they talk about what happens to them, even if it was a couple of years before or several years or many years before. That's right, right. What do you focus on? Do you focus on their suffering? And how much do you, how do you listen to that? And how do you deal with that? Okay, so I want to back up because actually there's a lot of things I do before we actually get to trauma retrieval, and this is something that I feel really strongly about as a as a trauma therapist, trauma specialist, if you will. I think that in our field for such a long time, those of us who've been around for a long time, we're trained to focus on what's wrong with the client. It was a very pathologizing approach. It was, you know, figure out what the DSM diagnosis is, and that would very much inform, that assessment would very much inform subsequent, you know, treatment choices. And over the years, and by the way, that never resonated for me, the idea of what's wrong with the client never, ever sat well with me. And so I think... I always pushed against it in in a, in a more unconscious way. I would say I've been in private practice 33 years. I would say, you know, a good 20 years ago, I became much more conscious of that and really decided to dramatically shift in my own thinking how I was viewing the client. First of all, I want to reiterate for me that is an extraordinary sign of courage and bravery that they're even showing up. Um, and when they do show up, the first thing that I'm curious about is not what's wrong with them, but rather what's right about them. I'm very, very interested in how are they still standing? How are they able to navigate and endure, you know, what they went through? I work with profoundly traumatized folks, and so these are people who had a real chronicity to their abuse. There was a lot of neglect. They were growing up in war zones. They often experienced or witnessed a lot of violence. 
And so I really became curious about how, you know, their resiliency, how is it that they're still here? So that was sort of step one in my mind was shifting the focus from a pathologizing approach to a very strength-based, deep pathologizing approach. And I communicated that to the client very early on in the process, in the earliest stages of therapy. I think through the questioning that I'm asking or I'm wanting to know about their resiliency and their strengths and their creativity and how it is that they have coped and survived and what have they used to cope and how are they connected to external resources in their lives and, you know, did they have moments of giving up and what prevented that from happening? So I think that kind of questioning, you know, kind of informs the work in a, in a much more strengths-based way. Then I do a lot of psychoeducation because I think it's really important to normalize and to universalize the thoughts, the feelings, and some of those inevitable coping strategies that people use, like addictive behavior, self-destructive behavior, distracting through chaotic relationships or working in a toxic workplace. And so I want to normalize all of that. I want to keep moving the client away from I'm crazy, which I think is is kind of the diagnosis, if you will, that so many people come into therapy holding on to. So I think that psychoed is, is a hugely important intervention and treatment strategy in and of itself. And then before I go to trauma retrieval, I am all about resourcing the client. And I know in my field that there are people who support this notion, and I know there are people in the field, some of whom are my dear friends and mentors, who don't necessarily support the notion of creating that safety net of resourcing. But it is something that I do feel strongly about and see it continually to be successful in in the work that I do. So when I talk about resourcing, I'm talking about assessing for the extent to which a client has affect regulation or if they're very dysregulated, which is more often the case, beginning to introduce them to strategies for self-soothing. We talk a lot about containment so that when they leave a therapy session, they are emotionally intact, which means they're less likely to be um, destabilized in between visits. We talk a lot about using objects for grounding. And I have a lot of different objects in my office, um, stress toys and, and aromatherapy stuff and seashells and different things that they can literally hold on to so that they can feel grounded and present. And I do a lot of breath work with them and a lot of getting them reconnected to their bodies. So I do all of that before we really get to the trauma narrative itself. And I think when you set the stage in that way, when they do get to the trauma narrative, they feel much more confident that they can now navigate and manage, you know, all of the normal emotional stuff that's going to come up around around that narrative. We're in the middle of an interview with Lisa Ferens, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. But then to answer your specific question about the extent to which I sort of let people suffer, um, the answer is I don't let people suffer because I think that um, even trauma retrieval work needs to be reparative rather than um, re-traumatizing. And so I'm very interested in making sure that as they're talking about their story, we are weaving in reparative dynamics. And that's everything from not having them 
sit in a frozen position as they talk about their narrative, because I think that reenacts the freeze response from childhood, but rather having them stand up and move, pace back and forth in my office, and I I will do it with them, just so they don't feel uncomfortable or weird. Um, Having them put one hand on their heart and one hand on their belly, just to kind of hold themselves, to gently rock as they're talking about their narrative. So I think it's really important to make sure that as people talk about things that are very painful, and they're going to bring up a lot of emotion, that we're showing them how to simultaneously comfort themselves through that process by making sure that they're not in a freeze response. And then I also make sure that there's built-in pacing. So I have an arrangement with my clients as we talk about traumatic narrative that they're going to continue, I'm going to check in with them and they're going to continually rate from me, for me from zero to 10 how distressed or dysregulated they feel. And the agreement is that we're not going to let that go above a five. And so I'll keep checking in and say, you know, give me a number. Where are you at? And if they say three, four, four and a half, we know that's a really good time to pause and to kind of titrate back to breath work, moving, uh, going back to a safe place image, uh, tapping. I mean, there's many, many things that you can bring in, but I think it's modeling for the client this process of titrating, which I think is something that... Peter Levine's work has really inspired for me this idea of, you know, you step on the gas and you step on the brake and you step on the gas and you step on the brake rather than just let's spend 50 minutes talking about stuff that is deeply upsetting to you. And then, frankly, having the client leave your office in a very dysregulated state, probably feeling worse than when they started and, you know, vulnerable to either doing something self-destructive as a way to numb or not even coming back. So if... The person comes in, let's say it's, it's a rape victim, uh, and, and let's say the attack happened a couple of years before, and something has triggered their wanting to come back and see you and talk to you. And there's this flood. I mean, they, tell, they start and they flood out what happened to them. So do you try to stop them? And you say, look, don't go any further into talking about this before we learn how to uh, manage the emotions. Is that something that you would do? Yes. I mean, I will do it in a very gentle, very compassionate way. I don't ever say the word stop. I say, I put my hand up and I say, let's just pause and take a breath. Just take one breath with me. Just as an attempt to kind of, yes, short circuit the flooding. Because, you know, back in the old days, I mean, again, this is a pretty dramatic shift for me in my work because, you know, when I was trained in the early 80s, you know, I was taught that get them to the trauma narrative as fast as you can, you know, frankly, have them relive it in your office, you know, because that supposedly is cathartic. There's so many people in the field who are so much wiser than me who really research this, you know, who look at the neuroscience of it, you know, people like Bessel van der Kolk and Pat Ogden and Janina Fisher and others. And I think it, it has become really clear that we understand the desire that people have to want to just quickly sort of vomit their story and unload everything. You know, they come in with so much tension. They're so, they've been waiting and waiting for an opportunity to just release it all. So we want to normalize that. There's nothing abnormal or pathological about that. But I'll tell you, Barbara, I do think it it becomes the responsibility of the therapist to modulate and titrate that work. Because I think what I've learned the hard way is that if you let the client just 
go and it becomes like a runaway train and you're not willing to be the brakeman in that. Yes, in the short term, the client might feel some temporary relief, but honestly, those are the clients who don't come back because they're, they're embarrassed, they feel overwhelmed, they leave therapy feeling worse than when they got there. And so none of those things are going to be, you know, reinforcing things that support the idea of coming back. So I do think that we do have that responsibility in a very gentle, compassionate, kind way to, to put up our hand to say, let's take a breath, let's pause for a moment. And then I'll say things like, I want you to know that I want to hear every aspect of this story. I appreciate and understand how important and how healing it's going to be for you to be able to have a compassionate witness. And I am going to be that for you. And I also want to teach you in the earliest stages of our work together that we know now that there's ways to do this that will feel healing for you. And frankly, there are ways to do this that will make you feel worse. And my ethical responsibility in our relationship is every step of the way to guide you so that you can do this work in a way that continues to heal you and make you feel empowered rather than overwhelm you. So I'm asking you to take a leap of faith and to trust that I'm going to get you there. We're going to reach that finish line, I promise you. It's just we're going to do it in a way where you don't feel unsafe, where you feel supported, where you feel resourced, where you believe that you can genuinely manage anything that comes up around that narrative. Is that something that you're willing to attempt to do with me? Because that's the way that I work. I've never had anybody say no. <laughs> you know, they can be taken aback for sure, you know, and I normalize that too because sometimes, you know, I'm their fifth therapist and it's quite possible that they've never encountered, you know, that approach before. Or they just, they've watched, you know, in treatment and stuff on TV and they've just assumed, you know, in your first session you're supposed to unload everything. So... You know, I also do my best before they even start to talk to, to kind of let them know, you know, in first visits, we don't unload everything because you need time to feel safe with me. We need time to build a relationship. And I want to give you some tools and some strategies so that the work feels safe and manageable for you. So I think we got to give them that heads up in the beginning, you know, that that's how we want to approach yeah, because otherwise, the trauma. I think it can go on and on session after session where it's, it feels like the person is yeah. almost like they're tantruming. Why did this happen to me? I didn't want this to happen to me. Mm. And, you know, they go on and on and on, endless um, sobbing and, and almost hysteria. And there's almost anything you do, you feel, that would make the person worse. I think, you know, you, you hit on something really important, and I do talk a lot about it um, in my books, and it's the idea that, um, clients are going to ask, why did this happen? Because we're wired for that. Every human being on the planet, you know, when something awful happens, I think without even thinking about it, the first, the first question we ask is why, why did this happen? I try to normalize that for my clients that asking why, you know, again, that's how we're wired. But I also let them know, and I think this is what you're alluding to, that when you're in a perpetual state of asking why, you're kind of on a hamster wheel, you know, and you're just spinning and spinning. And I think the truth is, and, you know, I've asked countless colleagues about this, and they really do agree that there's never going to be a good enough answer for why did this happen to me. 
And I say that to my clients straight out. In other words, you have all the right in the world to ask, why did this happen? That's a normal human response. And we're never going to find a good enough answer because there is. We don't understand why awful things happen. So I'll be with you for as long as you need to ask, why did this happen? What I want to let you know is what's going to help you get off that hamster wheel and move forward in your healing is to shift from why did this happen to me to what can I do with it now? Because that's a proactive question that will allow you to start to move forward. As long as you're stuck in why did this happen, why did this happen, there's, again, it's a hamster wheel. You don't get anywhere. But I do think it's important, you know, to kind of be with the client through why did this happen, why me, why, why did my father hurt me. Again, those are normal, you know, questions to ask, but it's, it's trying to attempt sort of logic to illogical or even, you know, sociopathic behavior. So we can't. We can't find logical answers to illogical acts. So when they're ready, the shift is going to be, what can I do with it now? And that's a very, I think, empowering question, a very forward-moving question. It's like, what's the extent to which do I want this experience to hijack the rest of my life, to hijack my thoughts, my feelings, my behavioral choices, my relationship choices? That was Lisa Ferens, and I'm Barbara Alexander. In our next podcast, Ms. Ferens and I will continue our discussion on post-traumatic growth. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas that you may have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information.